Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, well, good morning. We're going to get started here in Zechariah 13. And we're going to, like I mentioned, we're going to finish the uh, the chapter today, verses 7 through 9, and study the, the greatest time of trouble for Israel and what a time it'll be. Let's just, like we always do, let's open up in prayer here. Lord, we just thank you so much again for this time together. God, I pray that you would be with us as we study your word and teach us everything out of your word, Lord. We thank you, God, for preserving this for us for thousands and thousands of years. Lord, it is the only way we can build our faith. Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so, Lord, as we Search out the scriptures. We pray that you would teach us everything and build our faith to go out and to face all of the attacks from the enemy in this world today that we live in. And be with us, and again, be with the kids as they study your word this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so as always, just as a reminder for anyone that hasn't heard this before, but you know, 1 John 2, 27 and 28 we have to, the most important thing you can do as a believer is to be in the word of God, to be in the Bible. And as you study the Bible verse by verse, you want to lean on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach it all to you and not your own understanding because it is a, it's a spiritual exercise, not a logical one. And so as you're doing that, though, you will also grow in your faith and have confidence so that when Jesus calls us home in the rapture, you won't be ashamed before him at his coming. And that's, that's the most important thing you can do as a believer is to grow in that. So what we want to do is we're studying Zechariah, and as we have been since the Lord founded the church, is just lean on the Holy Spirit to teach us everything out of the Bible. And as we're closing out Zechariah here after today, we've got one more chapter. I don't know if that'll be two weeks or one. I'm going to look at it this week, but Chapter 14 is the last chapter in Zechariah, so we're almost through the book now. But as a reminder, Zechariah was written by God after the Babylonian exile. So the Israelites went into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. They were released. Babylon was conquered by Persia, by Cyrus, and he released the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And they come back, and they don't get very far because the walls destroy. They have no defense. They're spiritually immature, and so God raises up Haggai to try to encourage them to finish the temple. They don't listen, and so then God raises up Zechariah to encourage them to press on to spiritual maturity so they can rebuild the temple. And that's kind of the era in which you're looking at here. So it's, it's towards the very end of the Old Testament, but still around 500, 550 years before Christ steps foot on the earth. And the whole book, the whole book of Zechariah speaks of our Messiah, of Jesus. And the stone with seven eyes, which is a link to Revelation. God speaks about his throne and Jesus being crowned to sit on it. Jesus the Nazarene, that's a prophecy that's fulfilled 
out of Zechariah. The king riding on a donkey was from Zechariah 9.9, and that's fulfilled, obviously, in the Gospels, that prophecy. And then Daniel 9 tells us to the day when he would ride in as the king on the donkey. He's the shepherd, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, and his wounded, the wounds in his hands. We studied that last time. Jesus being pierced from, from Zechariah 12, that they would look upon him whom they have pierced. And then Zechariah 14, his return in power and destroying his enemies. And so when you look at this outline of the book, you know, those, two, those 10 visions, just as a reminder, they were all given in one night by God to Zechariah. And so he got all 10 of these visions from chapter one, verse seven, through chapter six, verse 15, all in one sitting in one night. Pretty amazing. And then after those visions, God closes the book from nine through 14 with the first arrival of Christ in nine through 11, and then the second arrival of Christ in Zechariah 12 through 14. Now, I remember from chapter 12, we kind of made this shift, right, to the second arrival of Jesus. Well, in chapter 12, it set the staging ground for the climatic event of Christ's return, where chapter 14 is his return. And so chapter 12 is like the staging ground of Armageddon. And the kingdom, again, will be established by power, not persuasion. And it's going to be finally the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7, that God would establish his throne, a throne for the, someone from the seed of David would establish his throne forever. And he's gonna build a house for his name. And that's all speaking of Jesus. In chapter 13, remember we started out and discussed the cleansing in verse one of the house of Israel, of, of the nation, once the millennium is established. And that cleansing then finally the nation of Israel will all be believers and they'll walk under the provision of Calvary once and for all and they will all be saved. Now, it's going to come at a high cost, right, through the great tribulation, but God is going to establish them as his people, as his nation once and for all, as he intended from the very beginning with Abraham. And then chapter 14 actually lays out some of the events surrounding the return of Christ when he wipes out his enemies at Armageddon. So just as a reminder in chapter 13, verse one, in that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So just remember in verse one, what we're in this chapter here, where God is talking about when he returns and he wipes out his enemies, what's going to happen then? and a fountain of cleansing is opened up for the entire house of Israel at that point. This fountain, meaning obviously the fountain that is the blood of Christ from Calvary. Now remember 12, 13, and 14, just as a reminder, they're not necessarily in chronological order. So when you're reading the Bible, don't get confused in when, you know, it seems like chapter 13 at the beginning is talking about after Armageddon, but then chapter 14 kind of details Armageddon. So don't let the timeline confuse you in some of these Old Testament books because God will plant these things along the way that seem so out of place, but really it's, <laughs> it's an insight from the Lord and he just kind of tucks these things away. So in, in any case, Israel as a nation will be fully cleansed and that's in Romans 11, 26 through 27. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Zion, or Sion in the New Testament in the Greek, the deliverer, that's a title of Christ, and shall turn away 
ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. And it's going to be a fulfillment of Isaiah 33, verse 24. And the inhabitants shall not say I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. So they will finally be forgiven of all of their iniquity. Okay, so the three verses we're going to cover today in chapter 13, verses 7, 8, and 9, it's all about, <clears throat> it's all about God God giving his shepherd, right? The shepherd, Jesus, for his people. And we talked about the good shepherd a lot back in chapter 11 and 12. And these three verses, the shepherd's going to be smitten or killed, then the sheep are going to be scattered. And then God looks far ahead to the great tribulation. And so it's gonna be one of those areas where God skips over a lot of time, between these two verses right here that we're gonna study. So let's look at this in verse seven. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. So obviously there's a lot in this verse, but who would be God's shepherd? You know, that's obviously Jesus as the good shepherd from Zechariah 12. And then God says his shepherd will be the man who is my fellow. So this is the father speaking, and we've got a hint that the shepherd will, will be not just any shepherd, but he will be a man who is God's co-equal or his fellow. So my shepherd, the man, my fellow. So you have a hint right here in Zechariah 13, seven, that Jesus, the, the Messiah, the good shepherd, will not only be God's equal, but he will be a man. And it's just amazing because it had to be a man to take back what Adam lost. You know, you think all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam lost it. He was given dominion of the earth. Satan was given dominion. The angels were given dominion before Adam was. That's why they cheered in Job 38 when God created the, the heavens and the earth. So they cheer, they inhabited the earth, then Satan rebelled from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. In between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2, Satan rebelled. He wanted to be like the Most High. God intervenes, judges the earth. That judgment's in Jeremiah 4, scatters them out. He floods the earth, and, the, and Satan's powerless to do anything about it until the Spirit of God brews over the earth in verse 2 of Genesis 1. And he alone puts it all back together again. So then he gives dominion to Adam. He creates Adam or Adam, which in Hebrew just means man. He gives it to Adam. Well, then Eve is deceived. Adam willingly joins her predicament and joins her in her place. And as a result, he falls, but he does it. It's obviously a foreshadowing Christ because Jesus joined his bride in our predicament, just like Adam joined Eve. And because of that, the line of the Messiah was preserved and Jesus was able to come forth. But it had to be a man because a man lost it. So God had to take on the form of man to reclaim what only man could take back. And when you study that in Revelation 6, that's why everyone in the throne room of the universe in Revelation 4 and 5 they're looking for a man to take the scroll from the Father's hands. They look in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. And they looked and they couldn't find a man anywhere that was worthy until 
one who was slain as a lamb that was slain comes forth and takes the scroll, and that's Jesus in man form, obviously. So he, he alone had the authority then to take it back. Okay, this Hebrew word for my fellow, it's interesting. It's only used here in, in Zechariah 13, 7, but also in Leviticus. It's used all over Leviticus. Uh, chapter 6, verse 2, 18, 20, 19, verses 11, 15, 17, chapter 24, chapter 25. Hopefully you get the picture there. It's kind of used all over. It's, it's clearly a term comparing two living beings that are equals. Man denotes his humanity. Fellow, my fellow, as God says, denotes his deity. It's kind of one of those places where you see Christ described in both his humanity and his deity. You see that in Isaiah 9, 6 on our Christmas cards, right? For unto us a child was given, unto us a, our child was born, unto us a son was given, the child being his humanity, the son being his deity. But smite the shepherd, look what this says. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. So not only, the, not only will the Messiah be a man who is God's equal, but he will have to be killed. He will be, in the Old Testament, that word smite always means killed or struck or murdered. Uh, and Christ indeed was struck and murdered in second degree murder, actually. That's why on the cross he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's second degree manslaughter. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Look at Philippians 2, verse 8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, Psalms 22 from the cross is Jesus' first person singular speaking, actually. That's why it opens up, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the whole Psalm is Jesus on the cross. You can actually learn a lot about the spiritual side of what was going on on the cross from that psalm. If you study Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12, it declares that, that Christ would be beaten so badly that he would not even be recognizable as a man. He was beaten that badly that his form, if you actually study that back in the Hebrew, in the originally, his form was so marred, he couldn't even be recognized as a man. And I don't know if he bears that image for all eternity or not, honestly. I'm not sure. Uh, the Bible's not real clear on that. We know in his resurrected body that he has the scars because of, of doubting Thomas, like we studied last time, the wounds in his hand, and he shows them. Remember, and even then, they didn't know him until the breaking of the bread, and it's when they looked at his hands, then they recognized him. So I don't know if he bears the, the scarred imagery in his face as well, or if it's just in his hands or what, we'll, we'll have to find out. But if you read those chapters in Isaiah 52 and 53, it's amazing. The Jews do not want those chapters in the Bible. They try to remove them out, those that are not Messianic Jews at least. They try to take them out because it describes Jesus as our substitute in so much detail that it had to be none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Now this verse, Zechariah 13, 7 it's quoted as fulfilled in Matthew 26, verse 31. Then saith Jesus unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. You know, it's amazing, even Jesus in Matthew 26, how he talks about 
um, all of you will be offended at me tonight and how often through your life you encounter people that are offended just simply because you're living for the Lord and you're living for Jesus and walking unashamed with him and boldly for him. And it's just amazing how people try to rail against Christians for doing that, doing nothing wrong, just minding your own business, walking with the Lord. But uh, don't be surprised when that happens. So after Jesus was crucified, his sheep, as in the nation of Israel, were scattered in the diaspora starting in 70 AD. Now the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The city was ransacked. Uh, The Roman legions came in, wiped out the city. All the people were scattered. And the Jews, almost for 1900 until May 14th of 1948, for almost 1900 years had no homeland. And yet they returned to the nation in a day They spoke the original language as prophesied in the Old Testament, and God formed a nation in a day back and brought his people back. It's amazing that he prophesied that in Isaiah. Can a a nation be formed in a day? God sarcastically asked, and he surely did. Now, shall be scattered. In this verse, it gives you a hint that it was a direct result of their disobedience to God and and the rejecting of their Messiah. So remember when Jesus showed up, that he told them that if they would have accepted him, it wouldn't have been John the Baptist coming to him. It would have been Elijah, and they would have ushered in the kingdom. See, it's because of their rejection of the Messiah that he went forward with this, and then they were all scattered. The nation was basically put in timeout, so to speak, temporarily. They were blinded, as he declared over them while riding in on the donkey. But now the Lord turns his attention to after the diaspora, to promising their return to the land. And, and God looks far beyond May 14th of 1948. And he prophetically declares what will happen when the Jews are in the land during the tribulation. So this is pretty interesting. So in between verse seven and verse eight, you have a gigantic amount of time in the Bible that's covered here. In verse eight, and it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die but the third shall be left therein. So two parts. So Jesus, as in chapter 11, just like in, as in chapter 11, remember he's had the same situation, chapter 11, verses 15 through 17. There's this huge gap of time. So during World War II, one out of three Jews were killed. And in the tribulation, during the great tribulation, two out of three will be killed. And that's what God's declaring here in verse 8. It shall come to pass in all the land. Now, in the Bible, uh, in God's eyes, there's only one land, right? It's Israel. It's his land, saith the Lord. Two parts therein shall be cut off and die. And he's declaring this ratio. And this is what I was talking about earlier. He doesn't say a number. He doesn't say, hey, during the tribulation, three million Jews will die. He doesn't say that. He says a ratio. And so when you see uh, Jews coming to know Christ, praise God, because that number in the tribulation is lowering slowly. The more of them that get saved, it could be down to just 10 of them and two thirds of them die. And so that's what God is saying is that, hey, there's a ratio I see coming. But church, if you will wake up and, and witness to my people, to Israel, then we can lower that number. 
over time, you can slowly lower that number. Now, if you know nothing about the Jewish people, but you know how to find Jesus in the Old Testament, you can get Jews saved very easily. You can show them their Messiah all the way from Genesis 3.15, where is prophesied of the virgin birth that the seed of the woman would be at enmity with the seed of the serpent. There, and you follow through that thread all throughout the Old Testament and show them every place Jesus shows up, which he is on every page. If you can do that, you can get, it's very, actually, they're very open to it. You can get a lot of Jews saved in doing that. And if nothing else, if you don't know any Jewish people in your life, just pray for them. Pray for those people. You know, it's pray, pray that God moves in such a way because as they come to know their Messiah, then huge, I mean, huge things happen in the world. I promise. It's pretty amazing. And Christ, Christ has a huge heart, obviously, for the people of Israel. Um, one of the things you've seen since October 7th with that war, when the war broke out out of Gaza, you've actually seen a, a split in some regard in the church, in those that support Israel and those that don't support Israel. And you've seen a lot of churches come out and unfortunately uh, say, hey, well, this was deserved. These people uh, deserve this. They need to get a Palestinian state and all these different things. And then you've got people that understand the biblical prophetic narrative of it, that God has promised them the land from the river Nile in Egypt to the river Euphrates in Iraq that stand with Israel. And every time someone tries to give up land in Israel, bad things happen because God's name is on that property. It's his property and he's given it to, to Israel. So one of the things that will help you as you're studying the end times and studying prophecy is you have to understand the difference between Israel and the church. And if you can do that, then everything in the Bible makes sense. If you start to blur those two, like somehow the church has replaced Israel and God's program, then you start to get very fuzzy on what's going on in the end times. And so you've got to keep them separate. And when you do that, you will understand that we as the church are not appointed to the tribulation. And praise God, we're not from 2 Thessalonians 5. Look at Jeremiah 30, verse 7 here on your notes. Alas, for that day is great, the day of the Lord, the, the tribulation, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So the time of Jacob's trouble, that's Israel. It's the time of their trouble. It's not the time of the church's trouble. And if you can understand the church has a different, a different uh, mission, they were birthed at a different time. We as God's people in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit indwells us permanently. We have to be removed as the bride of Christ before Jesus comes back to set up his throne on, on the earth from Jerusalem. And the difference between us and God's people, he's not forsaking Israel. He's going to bring them through the fire of the tribulation to be saved at the end. But they have an opportunity to get into the ark, so to speak, to get in Christ and to be saved, then you will understand everything out of Daniel 9, Revelation, all of the New Testament books about prophecy. It'll just make sense to you. So despite losing two-thirds of, of Israel, God's going to have a small remnant to set up the kingdom with him at the end of this. So look at Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 38, what God says, as I live, saith the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out, 
will I rule over you? <laughs> um, when you study the Jewish nation throughout the Old Testament, it's amazing how stubborn they are. You know, God delivers them out of Egypt. All these incredible things happen. The Exodus event occurs. They come out and 48 hours later, they're making a golden calf and saying, hey, this is the one that brought us out of Egypt. And God somehow still is dedicated to them, working with them, so patient with them. And, you know, sometimes as you're raising kids, you think, man, Lord, you must have incredible patience because I'm reading about you and the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And yet, you know, you've never forsaken them and your covenant still remains with them. But through fury, fury poured out, he will rule over them. And I'll bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries. This is the diaspora where you've been scattered. So that happened in 70 AD. They were scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people. And there will I plead with you face to face. Now that happens at the end of the tribulation when God is pleading with them. They're on the brink of extinction and God is pleading with them. Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, you see it prophesied over and over that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, over and over. So he's going to bring them under that rod of ruling authority, basically putting them back in place where they should be. And I'll bring you into the bond of the covenant and I'll purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. And I'll bring them forth out of the country wherein they sojourn and they shall not enter into the land of Israel and ye shall know that I am the Lord. See the two thirds that die in the tribulation, God calls them in Ezekiel 20 verse 38, he calls them the rebels and those that transgress against him. And so he's, getting, he's having to purge them out of the nation of Israel so that he can have a purified, refined people for his name once again, that nation. And God always preserves a remnant. If you haven't noticed throughout the Bible, he always, it's always a small group of people he preserves constantly. Even Sodom and Gomorrah, remember there were 10 righteous. And if you study that, that was Lot's family. There were 10 people there a small group that God had to remove before his wrath was poured out. And as much as Satan wants to destroy Israel, God will never allow their total destruction. No matter what happens in the world today, no matter how many armies of the earth surround Israel and want to wipe them out, he will never allow them to be wiped out. And you get an opportunity, actually, as you're, what you're seeing going on in the Middle East, you and I get an opportunity, actually, to watch his biblical promise maintain and stay and hold true. Because I'm telling you, they occupy land that is a tenth of the size of the state of Oklahoma. They are a small, small group of people. And frankly, the entire world wants them wiped out, except for a few nations that are for them. And praise God, the United States is still on the right side of that issue. But the promise to them is in Psalms 121 verse four, behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. You know, God's not going to sleep on them. And Jesus gave instructions to the Jews for this time of trouble. Now, when you study Matthew 24, 
it's, it's written to the Jews on what to do during the tribulation. This is a discourse by Jesus, starting in verse 15. He's telling them, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Now, if you don't know what that is, the abomination of desolation is the Antichrist coming into the Holy of Holies, fr frankly, blaspheming God and calling himself God. He comes in, that's in Daniel 9, God gives it a very technical term in the Bible. It's the abomination which causes desolation. And so that's why Jesus calls it here the abomination of desolation. This and three or four other verses are how we know a temple must be standing in the last days. So it's going to be rebuilt. We studied that a lot in the past. The Antichrist will then desecrate it by going into the Holy of Holies, declaring himself to be God. And then at that point, that's at the midpoint of the tribulation. Okay, so don't, don't forget the tribulation starts when the Antichrist affirms a covenant with Israel. That triggers the start of it. That's all from Daniel 9. That cannot occur until the church is removed and the Antichrist is revealed. The church has to be removed for him to be revealed. And that's all in First and Second Thessalonians. So we're removed. He's revealed. He rises to power. He affirms a covenant with Israel for seven years. Now, it doesn't necessarily say that the covenant is longer than that. But we know in the midst of the covenant from Daniel 9, three and a half years into it, the Antichrist goes back on his word, makes them stop their sacrifices in the temple. He goes into the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be God. And that's why Jesus says at that point, halfway through the tribulation, the back half will be what Jesus declares as the great tribulation. So the great tribulation is defined by Jesus as the back three and a half years. Just keep that in mind. So, and God always uses 360 days on his calendar, not 365. That's why it's 36 months, 1260 days, on and on. Okay, but look what he says. When they see that event, when the Jews see the event of the Antichrist going into the Holy of Holies, declaring himself to be God, what do you do at that time? And this is one of those spots where God actually has a technology statement because 2,000 years ago when he's saying this, if you were a Jew up in the Golan Heights or up in the mountains of Judea or if you were in your house somewhere, how would you see that event happen? You wouldn't. You would, it's in the, in the temple down in Jerusalem. The Antichrist is going in. But now today, we know from technology, right, it'll be a global event. It'll be all over the worldwide news. And that's what Jesus is saying. They will see this happen so it'll be like breaking news on MSNBC or CNN or Jerusalem Post or whatever it is. And there's going to be cameras and it'll be live action, people seeing this occur. But let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. So if, when you see this happen, do not go back to your home and take anything. God's telling them, you've got to leave. Neither let them or him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. So don't worry about going to pack anything. You, have a, you need a go bag at this point, right? You've got, like in all the special forces movies, those guys somehow always have a go bag hidden in a, in a cabinet somewhere. They need a go bag. And woe unto them that are with child, so you don't want to have a child during this time, 
and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in, in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Now, this is a hint too on how you know Jesus is talking to the Jews because they can't traverse the mountains in the winter over there. And on the Sabbath day, they're required to only go a Sabbath day journey. So how long can you travel in that day only? That's it. And so if it was on the Sabbath day, they can't get to the wilderness to where God wants them to go. For then shall be great tribulation. So here's where we get that phrase. Such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. Now that's a, that's a loaded statement from our Lord because there's been a lot of bad times in our history. But God is saying at that time, at the midpoint of the tribulation, the great tribulation, it will be the worst time in human history. And if you think about that, I know a lot of us in this room haven't lived through global, globally dark times. We've lived through times where the globalists and the elites and have tried to bring in globalism and bad times. You know, think about four years ago. But we've never really lived through major world wars, events, our nation being invaded, you know, things like that happening. And so to imagine though thinking about what it would have been like to live in World War II or back in World War I or heck, I mean, even back in the ancient times when wars just took, took over cities constantly. The, all those times combined won't even compare to what this is like when literally hell is loosed on earth and the bottomless pits opened up in Revelation 9 and those demonic hordes are unleashed on man for a season and fallen angels are rebelling against God. Satan's constrained to the earth for a season, and he unleashes everything he can to try to take out the Jews. That's all he wants to do. Okay, so great tribulation. Okay, and except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So if God didn't intervene, then those days no human would be left, is what he's saying there. Okay, let's explore this discourse a little bit, because this is something for you in the church as a Christian to understand. In Matthew 24 and Luke 21, Jesus has two discourses. And a lot of people think they're the same discourse. And he gives us a list of signs. And you'll hear a lot of people talk about these. They call them the Olivet Discourse. Well, if you rightly divide the word of truth, these are not the same discussion. So let's look at these real quick. Jesus in both chapters gives a list of signs that will accompany his return to the earth to rule and reign. And they line up actually with Revelation 6. And these passages in the Gospels, like I mentioned, are often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Now, the grouping of signs are the same in both chapters, but they're not the same discussion. And Jesus begins both discussions actually with the same command to not be deceived. And that's in Matthew 24, verse 4, and Luke 21, verse 8. Now, deception, gosh, I mean, deception is rampant today. You know, how hard is it to actually find the truth about anything? And you think about with the onset of AI, you think about with, there was a, I saw this whole news clip where a guy asked an AI chatbot to basically write a paper on economics for him. And the AI chatbot did it in, you know, four seconds, boom, there's your paper with sources attached to it at the bottom 
Well, those sources, when you dug into them, were totally fake and made up. The, the bot, the AI, had lying built into it. And when you, when you think about this, how deceptive could that be? I mean, imagine how this could change just our court of law. How can you trust anything, you know, these days when these AI bots could make a picture that looks very real of you doing something that you never did, you know, from a CCTV camera or from something with its date stamped. It's deception is, going, is really going to take over, especially when the church leaves. And it's not to be fearful about it, but just think about Jesus said, do not be deceived. Now, there's only one way you and I cannot be deceived, and that's to be in the word of God, because Jesus said, I am the truth. And so if you're in the word of God and you have truth buried with inside of you, constantly refreshing and renewing your mind, then truth is your anchor in the center of everything that you do and how you see the world, then you won't be deceived and led astray. And so you have to have truth at the center of all of it. And if you're not studying the Bible daily, you are open to being deceived and you can be deceived. Everything going on right now with the UFOs, we've talked about it in here, you know, ad nauseum over the last couple of years, but those are deceptive, rebellious angels that are against God. They are interdimensional. That's who they are. They are fallen angels and demonic entities that want to deceive us as humanity. Satan is a liar, and he's been a liar from the beginning, as God said in John and in Revelation 12. And he's, he will always be a liar. And so right now, what you see is this lie planted to everyone that, hey, these are our space brethren. They, they were here and they seeded humanity billions of years ago. And at some point when a group of people are removed, they'll come back and save humanity and usher in the greatest time of peace known to man. That's the lie being planted. And see, Satan knows that the rapture will happen. And so he has to have an excuse for it. And so how do you have an excuse for it? Well, you set up this lie. You set up a lie that will deceive all of humanity. And so when two or three billion people just disappear suddenly, then he'll have a reason why. And everyone will walk right into the trap that he's laid out all of these years. And when you study the Bible, you think, Matt, that's crazy. What do you mean interdimensional beings? Well, if you study the Bible, angels are coming in and out of our dimension constantly. They came down with Jesus and dined with Abraham and Sarai. Jacob was asleep on a rock with Jacob's ladder, angels ascending and descending from heaven. They're in and out constantly. I mean, in Daniel, Daniel takes to fasting for 21 days, and the second he starts the fast, a messenger angel's dispatched to him to deliver a message. But for 21 days, he's fighting the prince of the power of Persia to get through to Daniel's dimension to speak to him. So there's warfare going on behind the scenes. So you've got to be in truth to not be deceived. And so when you look at these two discourses, look at Matthew 24, 3, and as he set upon the Mount of Olives. So Matthew 24 is on the Mount of Olives. Luke 21, verses 37 through 38, and it was daytime and he was teaching in the temple. So see, already right there, you know these are two different discourses for two different times. And when you line these up, you know, there's a different emphasis by Jesus in these accounts. Luke is written to the Gentile church. Luke 21, 12, Jesus tells them, 
before all of these signs. Matthew is written to the Jews in Matthew 24, verses 8 through 9. Jesus says, then shall they, in other words, after these signs. So right now, so if you rightly divide what the Lord is saying, Luke 21, for us as the church, before these signs happen, here's what you need to do. Matthew 24, to the Jews, after these signs, here's what you need to do. So the marker are the signs that God lays out. And what he lays out, false Christs, wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, the rapture, and the abomination of desolation. And all of those line up in Revelation 6, after the church is removed. Revelation 6, 1 through 2, the white horse are false Christs. Verses 3 and 4, the red horse are the wars. Verses 5 and 6, the black horse are famines. And verses 7 through 8, the green horse are pestilences. So in Luke 21, before those signs, and he goes through the signs and the rapture in Luke 21, verse 28, he says, when you see all of these begin to come to pass, look up for your redemption draws nigh. In other words, I will take you home. When you see this setup happening, look up for your blessed hope is coming and I'm taking you home. It, to the Jews in Matthew 24, all of these signs, he doesn't give that, that direction. There's no reference to the rapture. But then in verse 24, verse 15, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, leave, get out. This is what you do. So hopefully that makes sense. It's to the church versus to the Jews. Okay, the last verse here in Zechariah 13 and I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. Now, this is one way you know the church is removed at this point because God once again is calling Israel his people and they are calling him their God. It's kind of, it should remind you of, remember Hosea? Hosea was commissioned to have two children, and he called them uh, two different names, but lo and me, and I can't remember the other one, but one means not my people, and the other one means my people are redeemed, and so you've got these, this kind of setup here. But the remnant of Israel will suffer, but by preserved, by preserved and not completely destroyed. They'll be preserved, okay? They will be preserved. Look at Isaiah 1.9, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. You know, I don't know how many of you have gone to visit Sodom and Gomorrah today, but you can't find it, right? It's wiped out. And that's what they're saying. If, if God had not preserved us, we would have been wiped out. They will be brought through the fire. Now, this is very similar to the fiery furnace scene in Daniel 3. Now, remember in Daniel 3, you have Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Daniel's three friends, their Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar gave them satanic, pagan, Babylonian names. Well, remember they don't bow to the, to the image of Nebuchadnezzar. They're thrown in the fire. So they're preserved. And God's enemies who threw them in the fire are the only ones that are killed. But then Daniel's not present. And so even in that event, you see a model of what the tribulation will be like. There's a group of people removed, Daniel or the church, a group of people preserved through the fire, Israel, and a group of people killed in the fire, those that would be against them or against God, frankly. And you have the same thing in Noah's flood. You've got people, Enoch removed before, Noah and his people preserved through, and then those that perished in the flood. 
So our God is a consuming fire, and not only for Israel in the tribulation, you know, but for you today. And Hebrews, the last verse of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire, and he wants to refine you, to fully surrender to him in every area of your life. So it's not enough to get born again. You've got to then start to surrender everything to him. You can be saved and run away from what God calls you to, but there's great loss that occurs, not your salvation, but your place in the kingdom. And if you press on and serve the Lord, you finally have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you to break free of anything that Satan had against you before. And God declares here that Israel will call on his name and then God will hear them. So this is the prerequisite to the return of Christ. Now, there's no prerequisite to the, retur- to the rapture, but to the return of Christ, there is a prerequisite. And it is that Israel has to confess their sin, their offense, and cry out to him. And that's why the entire world is against Israel. Satan thinks if he can wipe out the Jews, then he can win and Jesus can't return. And it's in Hosea 5.15, the last verse of the book of, or chapter 5 of Hosea. Look what God says. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. So God, to go and return to his place, he had to have left it, right? And then he's going to return to it. So he left it. He was crucified. He was resurrected. He's ascended back to heaven. And until, he's going to return there, until they, Israel, acknowledge their offense, which is a singular specific offense, the rejection of the Messiah. And that acknowledgement's during their affliction, the time of Jacob's trouble, at the very end. And when that occurs, they will seek God with a great fervency, okay? And their prayer then are the first three verses of Hosea 6 in the tribulation, Come and let us return unto the, the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. And in the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. So this is Israel. After two days, after two days, he will heal us. He will hear us and heal us and revive us. And in the third day, we'll live in his sight. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning and and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. So God will completely heal and restore Israel no matter how dark or bleak the outlook is during the great tribulation. And so you've got to finish strong and get as many saved as you can into the ark. That's, That's our mission right now. We need to get as many people saved as possible. But you know, Satan does not want you to live in freedom and to walk freely in Christ. And once you get saved and you're walking with the Lord, man, he will do everything possible to try to get you off track. And when we're going through the book of Hebrews, it's all structured around these five warnings to the believer, the danger of drifting, the danger of hardening the heart, the danger of failing to mature, the danger of willful sin, and the danger of refusing. And so when you look at that, it's a, it's a progressive pattern because when you're in Christ and you start to drift away, then your heart gets hardened, then you fail to mature, then you commit willful sin, and then you refuse God. And when that happens, 
then you start going back the other way. You commit more willful sin. You continue to fail to mature. Your heart gets even harder and you drift further away. And so it's this pattern that, that moves like a snake in the lives of believers. And God doesn't want that for you because he's got something so great for you on the other side of this. You've got crowns to live for. You have rewards in the kingdom. And God wants to use you in such a big way, huge way right now. All he's looking for is someone that's, worth, that's willing, just a willing vessel to go out and be a servant to him. And look, remember what Jesus said in Revelation 3, 11, behold, I come quickly, hold that fast, which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And as we look at the, at the horizon and everything that's going on, as you study biblical Bible prophecy and you're studying this, you've got to be a watchman. We studied this in Bible study actually on Friday in Ezekiel 33, but you've got to be a watchman You've got to see the prophetic setup of what's going on and cry out to the world and the people that you've got to get your life right with the Lord and surrender your life to him because you do not want to be caught naked as Jesus declared and caught in a, in a shameful state when he calls us home. And who knows if that'll be in our lifetime or not, but you want to be obedient and walking with the Lord. And each of these crowns lays out something for you on the other side of this. It's all tied to something you did in this life. The crown of righteousness, for example, in 2 Timothy 4.8, it's for those that are looking and loving and longing for the appearing of the Messiah in the rapture. If you're doing that, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for you. And it's just amazing that Jesus made us co-heirs with him over everything. And when you study this in Revelation 2 and 3, there's all these rewards to the overcomer to eat of the tree of life. So access was lost by Adam and Eve. It's restored. It's restored to us in the millennium and after. It's pretty amazing. Not hurt by the second death, the hidden man, the white stone, the new name, power over the nations, the morning star, that's Jesus. You wear white raiment, you're a pillar with your new name on it in the temple of God. You get to sit with Christ on his throne, which that's amazing. And you get to inherit all things. And to be an overcomer, you just have to remain loyal to God, overcome trials and tribulations in your life. Be spiritually zealous for the Lord. Do not deny Jesus. Do not defile your garments and keep the word of his patience. And when you do all of that, and you're living a sanctified, refined life for Jesus, you remain in the book of remembrance from Malachi 3. It's incredible. There's the book of life and there's the book of remembrance for those that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. It's just amazing that keep your name in there and stay, stay on this walk with God because he's got big things for you. And if you don't know the Lord or if, you're, if you found this online sometime in the future and you don't know Jesus, it is so simple. It's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's just that simple. You're instantaneously born again, never to, again to be lost, but found and found in God. So do that. If you don't know the Lord, do that and make the greatest decision you'll ever make in your life. Get on your knees wherever you are right now and just cry out to the Lord. And Lord, we pray for all of those people around the, Lord, um, around the world that God, those that are under persecution, 
for simply studying the word of God and, and having a Bible in their household. We pray protection upon them. God, we pray that you would go forth and embolden them and strengthen them. Lord, if there's anyone out there that does not know you that's listening to this, we pray that right now you would move heaven and earth and grab a hold of them and let them confess with their tongue that you are Lord and be born again right now in the spirit, never to be lost, but to forever be a child of the living God. And Lord, let them start the greatest journey and the greatest walk they will ever go through in their lives of walking with their creator. And Lord, I pray that you would pour your spirit out over the families around the world that are raising their children to serve you. Lord, I pray godly wisdom and discernment and understanding upon the, the parents. Lord, I pray that you'd guard their marriages. Lord, I pray that you would continue to strengthen them as Satan has a, a full-on attack on marriage in this world and what that covenant means that you established. Lord, let no man separate it as you declared, Lord. And God, we do lift up the nation of Israel and the, and the Jews all over the earth. Lord, since May 14th of 1948, your spirit has gone out to the ends of the earth, calling them back to their homeland. And as tens of thousands of Jews return constantly every year to Israel, and as your people are gathering again in that place, God, I pray that you would pour your spirit out upon them and that you would move and get as many of them saved right now before it's too late. Lord, as you call us home in the rapture at some point, I pray that you would have a massive revival in Israel for Yeshua, Hamashiach, the Messiah, their king, and that they would no longer see it as a suffering Messiah and then a ruling Messiah, but the truth of the matter that they are one and that Jesus, you will come back as the son of David, as Yeshua, as the king risen from the dead, and you will set up your kingdom with them and save them through that fire. But let the Israelites see you in this day and hour so that that, that numerator can be brought down more and more and more. Lord, we know from your word that two thirds of them will not make it during the tribulation. But God, make that number small and save as many of them as you can. Let the, the scales fall off their eyes and see you. Guard those people in Israel as the entire world looks to stand up against them. Guard the children over there. Guard the women. Guard the babies. Lord, guard the teachers and the students. Lord, we pray for wisdom upon Netanyahu that you would let your spirit guide him in everything. Give him discernment and wisdom to lead that nation, your people. And Lord, let him cry out to you in a mighty way for protection and direction for that nation. It is your land, God. Steer it according to your hand and be with us as we leave this place today, Lord. In your mighty name we pray, amen.